0: Blog Talk Radio. And now, here's your host, William Powell, the king of DC media. Good evening, dear listeners. Welcome to another episode of the Inside Acting Radio Show. Tonight's guest is movie critic extraordinaire WTOP. Radio Entertainment Editor Jason Fraley, who will talk about his list of greatest movies, American and Foreign. Now, Jason is also a filmmaker and self-described coffee abuser, Seinfeld quoter, and day-tripper, raised on Ripken, Joe Gibbs, and rock and roll. He hails from Frederick, Maryland, which is north of our lovely nation's capital, and has been a film critic at WTOP since 2011. You can follow him on Twitter at jfreywtop That's a capital J F and WTOP. And by the way, if you want to be in the know about this show, join us on Facebook in the group entitled Inside Acting Radio Show Listeners and Guests. You can also follow me on Twitter at insideunderbaracting. That's capital. I, capital A, I see Jason is on the line, so let me go ahead and bring him on the air. Good evening, Jason.
1: Hey, William, how are you? Thanks for having me.
0: Yeah, man, thanks for coming
1: on. I'm excited.
0: (laughs) Me too. (laughs) (laughs) Now, I'm going to read a movie name from your list, and I'd like you to tell me what makes it a classic and why you ranked it in your top ten. So tonight we've got time for ten American films and about five foreign films from your list that you've compiled over the years. So now the first one I'm going to talk about tonight is uh, number ten on the American list, The Wizard of Oz, 1939, directed by Victor Fleming. Talk about that one.
1: Yeah, so when we were compiling these lists, obviously uh, there was, you know, more than there was like a hundred American movies and a hundred foreign movies, so. Um, most of the movies, most of the entries I had sort of these, you know, auteurs, these, you know, artistic filmmakers that are acclaimed in film schools and critics and beyond. Um, but I also wanted to make sure we got some, you know, popcorn movies. So every five slots, including uh, here down at number 10, and you'll see again at number five, we have sort of these blockbusters, these crowd pleasers. Um, and I just thought, what what better way to enter into the top 10 with kind of the ultimate popcorn uh, pop culture staple, right? The Wizard of Oz. Um, I think I wore this movie out when I was a kid, along with probably everyone else. But I, I honestly don't think. I mean, are there greater movies? Yes, yeah, absolutely, absolutely. If we were gonna make just the straight, are the, the ten best movies? It probably might not crack that, right? But if we're talking about the biggest pop culture impact, I mean, I don't think another movie had a bigger impact than that. I mean, not only probably the greatest movie song of all time was Judy Garland singing, you know, "Somewhere Over the Rainbow." Um, but, you know, just the, the famous lines that you almost forget, you know, we say them all the time, but you almost forget they're from us, like pay no attention behind the man to the man behind the curtain. I mean, you'll hear that every election <laughs> cycle. Um, you know, right. I don't think we're in Kansas anymore. Um, you know, um, ding dong, the witch is dead. Uh, you know, if I only had a brain, oh, oh, <laughs> like, it, it goes on and on and on. I'll get you my pretty, the little dog too. I mean, um, it's almost so much, uh, Elton John singing goodbye yellow brick road. I mean, it's literally, all over our pop culture, and, um, you know, but so much so that I think people almost forget how innovative it was to go from that black and, well, it's not really black and white, but, you know, that sepia tone in Kansas to her opening that door to a, a colorful, magical, technicolor uh, fantasy world of Oz. I think, I mean, I think it's almost easy to take for granted how how groundbreaking that was, and I also just just love the message. You know, there's so many dreamers out there that are like, Dorothy, you know, in small towns that, that want to go out and, you know, conquer the world, they go to Oz. And in the end, it's it's a sweet message that, you know, that you, that you can come home. And there is no place like home, except going on the journey to Oz allows you to be better for it and almost allow you to see your, your own Kansas in color, if you know what I mean.
0: Yeah, it's it's an amazing film. It'll, it'll never, ever go out of style. <laughs> yeah. Absolutely. All right. So. Let's uh, move to a more adult movie, uh, "The Graduate." Uh, the, I guess the key word there is plastics. Nineteen sixty-seven, Mike Nichols. Talk about that one.
1: Yeah, it's a, it's a that's a, a tough transition going from a kids movie like Oz to an adult flick like uh, "The Graduate," right? <laughs> yeah, <laughs> kind of, right. uh, but I guess this is our sex comedy, a mature audience on the list, um, but. You know, I'm. Know. What what else can be said about this movie? I mean, Dustin Hoffman, Katherine Ross, and Anne Bancroft. It's it's got to be one of the you know most bizarre love triangles of all time. You know, young <laughs> Benjamin falls for the neighbor's wife, the adult Mrs. Robinson, who is a pop to herself, um, but then also falls for her daughter. You know, later on in the movie, and has to get out of this this weird you know affair with the older woman to try to date the daughter and you know obviously that's that's going to go poorly the complications will ensue there so you know not only did it you know burst open the bedroom door if you want to look at it from sort of a, a social cultural counterculture standpoint sort of of the 60s i mean you can't think of a probably a more important movie than that i mean it came the same year as Bonnie and clyde and in the heat of the night and cool hand luke and all these um, guests who's coming to dinner like 67 was a major year where just all those social norms were blown apart. But the thing that I really love about The Graduate, not only the great performances and the awesome Simon and Garfunkel soundtrack, but to me, Mike Nichols' direction in this, I mean, I, there's so many comedies out there that just settle for laughs, but this one has laughs, you know, there's awkward, <laughs> awkward uh, adolescent laughs. But also, Mike Nichols, you know, he directs, on par with any other genre, you know, you could call it a serious drama in terms of how well the direction is. I mean, go back when you get a chance and look at like the opening 20 minutes. I mean, Benjamin, we we first see him in his bedroom. He's got these vertical bars down his wallpaper. It's almost like he's, They're like jail bars. He's trapped in this existence, and he needs to rail against his parents who are smothering him um, at this graduation party. Mrs. Robinson comes in and tosses him her car keys, but it lands in the fish tank, right, and lands on this little scuba diving figurine, right? Everyone's like, what is that about? But Nichols is saying this is the key. (laughs) We're going to come back to this. So, of course, later, what do we get? We get Benjamin as a scuba diver in the pool. He gets a gift of scuba deer for his graduation gift. And there's this awesome underwater shot where it pulls away from him in his scuba suit. And he becomes this really small figure, like the figure in the fish tank, literally drowning from the pressure from his parents. There's stuff like this throughout the entire movie. I think it's one of the greatest directed movies of all time, let alone, you know, the, the script and how hilarious and awesomely acted it is. And But, um, man, I mean, talk about, go back and watch it again. A few few films, especially comedies, tutorial genius, like that one. I, I love them.
0: Mm, yeah, I like the uh, the soundtrack, too. It
1: was awesome. Yeah, I think it was one of the first, uh, it may have been the first, that sort of a, a, a pop or rock artist provided the entire soundtrack. I know uh, Cat Stevens did it a few years later in, in Harold and Maude, but um, yeah, I mean, before that, they were just, you know, th- there would be an artist that would contribute a single song, you know, like Moon River from Breakfast at Tiffany's or something like that. But I think it was the first one that did sort of a, a wall-to-wall soundtrack, you know, here's to you, Mrs. Robinson.
0: Exactly. Okay, so let's go uh, 13 years later, 1980 Raging Bull by uh, Martin Scorsese. Uh, talk about that one.
1: Right, we wanted to get a sports flick here in the top ten, and I mean, man, how do you how do you pick a greatest movie from Martin Scorsese? I mean, he's prolific. Yeah, Mean Streets. Oh, it's impossible. I mean, Mean Streets. He burst onto the scene. It was you know basically signified all of his techniques that would follow. Taxi Driver. It's just an absolute masterpiece of sort of alienation in New York with De Niro, and and then obviously Goodfellas, probably probably the fan favorite. I, I adore that movie. I mean, whenever it's on TV, you can't turn it off. One of the greatest gangster flicks ever. But to me, if I had to pick one that you would call um, Marty's masterpiece, that's what Spielberg called it. He said this was Marty's masterpiece. Um, I got to go with Raging Bull. Um, not only do we get this amazing uh, transformational performance by Robert De Niro, who goes from this chiseled in-ring fighter as Jake LaMotta, you know, and there were even boxers that said if you wanted to take up boxing, you probably would have had a good career, that he's chiseled and, you know, looks great and, and is this raging bull in the ring. But then, you know, by the end, he's this really overweight, um, I think he put on like 40, 50 pounds, De Niro, played like that part of the role. He's just this overweight, cheap uh, nightclub owner telling – Bad jokes and pouring bad booze for very little crowds, and it's it's crazy to see how um you know how far he's fallen. And to me, the movie is just like one of those perfect, artful looks at one man's alienation and how you know his, his paranoia with his wife Kathy Moriarty and his brother uh, Joe Pesci's first role. Um, how he just sort of by by the sheer paranoia inside him. Um, just alienates literally everyone around him until he's this fat failure at a cheap nightclub. And not to mention, just those in-ring boxing sequences are amazingly edited by Thomas Kuhmaker, directed by Scorsese. I mean, that last moment yeah. where Sugar Ray Robinson pummels him—you're um, not going to find better <laughs> editing and things like that. But even the ring size is is symbolic. You know, like in the it, the, the size of the ring literally changes to, from a smaller ring to a, a bigger, wider, open ring. Um, depending how much of uh, of uh, Lamada's career you know he has ahead of him and how, how his stature in, in the business, but there's so much going on in this movie that awesome stark black and white. Um, I just, I mean, you know, I I love Rocky as much as the next person. I think it's one of the greatest love stories I've ever told, Rocky and Adrian. But to me, as a top yeah. ten movie, Raging Bull is um, cinematic art at its best.
0: Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah, definitely. Okay, so we're going to go to a a film that saw John Wayne. He played a pretty bad man, uh, The Searchers, 1956, by the the great, great John Ford. So tell me a little bit more about that
1: one. Yeah, John Ford was one of those epiphany uh, directors for me, you know, back in your early film theory classes, right, in film school and things where, you know, I'll never forget a professor that threw this picture up, this movie up on on the screen. And the first time you watch it, it looks like you know, it just seems like a normal cowboy and Indian picture um, that that you'd that you'd watch with, let's say, your grandpa on a Saturday morning or something, right on television. It it seems like yeah. one of those classic John Ford westerns, right? But then when you go back and look at it again, there's so much more in play. I mean, uh, the way Ford directs it, even in just like the first. Ten fifteen 15 minutes, there is an entire um, love affair that John Wayne's character, Ethan Edwards, has with his, uh, his sister-in-law, Martha, um, who's brutally raped and, and murdered and, you know, and, and starts the whole chase, um, you, know, you know, during the catalyst of the movie. But even before that, there is this – the way that Ford groups John Wayne and his sister-in-law, Martha, together in the shots, they're always together in the shots, whereas her, her you know, her husband is, is off in his own shot – so it's a two shot versus a one shot, you know, or or they're on the same side of the fireplace. There's little touches by of the hand and little glances um, as they you know as, as they reach for a lantern or as he looks through a bunch of doorways to to watch her you know gently hold his coat through the door in the bedroom. But there's all this great symbolic stuff of of a whole you know subtext of this family that's that's under the surface that you know you don't even notice the first time you watch it. But to me the real power of this thing is you know is is this is one of the first movies, along with Giant, uh, George Stevens' Giant, the same year, 1956, that dealt with the issue of, of racism. I mean, you have John Wayne, everyone, you know, he's, everyone. He's beloved as the Duke, right? He's the, he's this great Western hero, but in this in this movie, he plays someone who is deeply racist and prejudiced against. Native Americans. Um, he he goes off against yeah. Comanches, and I mean, God, this is especially in this town, right? This is a topic we're we're still having to this day. But you know, he the title to me is it's more than just the searchers. You know, on the surface, he's searching for Natalie Wood, his, his niece, um, who was kidnapped. To me, the the real meaning of the title is it's it's a soul searcher, man. I mean, in order to save his niece from the Comanches, he has to search his soul and save himself from his own prejudice against Native Americans. It builds to that great, that final shot when he, he lifts Natalie Wood up, and you don't know whether he's going to kill her out of his own racist rage, right, or if he's going to yeah. see the light and, and get over that racism that is deep in his heart, just like in, in Giant, it was it was racism against Latin America, Latinos. I mean, God, we're, we're still dealing with that today in this campaign. But, man, John yeah. Ford, I mean, I think he deserves credit for um, really – being one of the early voices to go against it, I mean, this is the '50s. This is like this is like Plessy versus Ferguson. This is before I Have a Dream. This is what I Have a Dream was '63. This is '56. I mean, this is ahead of the yeah. ahead of its time. This is before To Kill a Mockingbird was even written or shot. Before Atticus Finch, uh, John Ford gave us someone who is deeply flawed. This anti-hero. Um, and, and not to mention one of the coolest visual bookends of any movie of that opening and closing shot, um, opening to the wilderness like that. And man, that it's a, it's a piece of work.
0: Yeah. And I have to add that uh, just visually, I mean, there were some shots there at the beginning that put me in mind of, uh,
1: the, the,
0: uh, the burnt up, uh, homestead in Star Wars. So it was very, yeah. very stunning. A you know, monument in the valley.
1: Yeah. Oh, Monument Valley. Yeah. I mean, he, uh, from stagecoach and on, he always, yeah, he loves shooting in Monument Valley. And yeah, you'll notice, um, there there's, there's actual moments where that are, that other filmmakers harken back to that constantly. I mean, you mentioned, you know, like star Wars, uh, when Luke Skywalker comes upon his, his aunt and uncle, um, you know, their, their ranch burnt down in the beginning, that's exactly Ethan Edwards, John Wayne coming upon his burnt, his family's burnt down ranch or, Say Spielberg yep. in Close in Close Encounters of the Third Kind. There's some there's that shot of that like eerie orange light pouring in through the door as they close the door because they don't want the aliens to kidnap the kid, kid. That is exactly that the orange sunset pouring in through the door that that John Ford has here during the the Comanche attack. So um, you'll you'll find this movie referenced in so many others, in, including I think even in Scorsese's uh, Mean Streets. They they go to watch go to watch it in the theater. So there you go. There's our transition from number eight to number seven. <laughs>
0: it's a great right. movie. Yeah, now, let's talk about, now, this is one movie, I've only seen it once, uh, directed by the great Orson Welles, came out in 1941, has a famous tagline, I was it, Rosebud, Citizen yeah. Kane. Now, I don't, that one I never really, a lot of people say it's the best one ever made. I don't I don't know. Tell, tell me more about that one.
1: Yeah, I, I. It's interesting you say that because uh, I remember the first time I saw it, probably back in like high school or something. It was on Turner Classic, and you know, you're a you're a budding film lover, but you're you know, your you know, your mind's not all there yet because you're used to watching only blockbusters back then, which is cool. There's a place for that as well. But, um, but yeah, you know, so um, the first time I saw it, I I was you know nodding off. They they do the big reveal, and, and you don't get it. You know, you're you're like, okay, it was a sled the whole time. What what you know that. I thought this was going to be a shocking twist like the sixth sense or the Shawshank redemption or, or the usual suspect, you know, you're used to those big, Oh my God. endings, right. This is definitely not one of those endings. I, but I almost feel like it's, it's almost better to know the ending, uh, to know the twist, to know that it's the Rosebud is a sled, um, to, when you watch it, I really do because, um, e- either that or watch it once, not knowing it, and go back and, and, and see how it's placed in there. Because it's one of those twists more that you have to, you have to contemplate it um, and, and, and think about why is it that on his deathbed he is, is thinking about this, right? So and it, it really comes back to, you know, it's, it's sort of that, you know, innocence that we've lost as, as, as children. You know, he, he's amassed all of these possessions throughout his life. He's very materialistic. Um, it was based. On um, Hearst, William Randolph Hearst, but um, yeah, there's, there's this guy who's acquired everything in his life, but at the end, he's missing that that sled he had in his childhood, and uh, there's just something almost sad about that. Whereas we've all had um, maybe an imaginary friend, or or um, <laughs> a, a toy, or a stuffed animal, or something that we had as a kid that would would you know imagine if you were laying on your deathbed, and, and that's the only thing you thought of back back before you know. The world and, and adulthood corrupted you because let's face it, it's we're a clean slate as kids, right? And you know, as we get yeah. older, we, you know, we. What do they say? You're, you're. No one's born hating anyone. You're taught to hate. You're taught materialism. You're taught all this this bad stuff in the world. And so I think that's what Wells Wells is going at. Um, and there's there's a scene, you know, when he's when he's taken away from his parents. Um you know his childhood home, um where he uses that sled rosebud to push away um his adopted uh, mr thatcher so there 's little and and then later on you see like the little snow globe um next to to the childhood picture of his eventual wife there 's like all these cool little visual cues too but um but so to me i mean i would I would urge people to. Look at this movie not strictly as a as a you know forward moving script which which it is which is which is very groundbreaking it, it's a fractured narrative right it, it jumps all over the place sort of a an early pulp fiction in that regard one of the first to, to do that instead of tell a straightforward story but beyond just sort of the movie going experience um, I would invite people to look at, at this is the and the reason it, it tops best list is I, this is the movie if you want to understand what Sort of what a film scholar's idea of directorial symbolism is, and there's this f- fancy French phrase called mise en scène, but it basically just means um, everything in the frame being symbolic. Um, look at the way that Wells uses his—it's—it's it's called deep focus photography, where the back, the foreground, and the middle ground and the background can all be in focus at the same time. And he uses yeah. that not only—not only like a, a cool technological thing, which it was an innovation, but he uses it. Symbolically, so um, just one final example before we move on. Let's say there's a scene where where Charles Foster Kane is 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 signing. He's signing a contract, turning over his his newspaper business. Um, He. He starts in the foreground, and, and as, as they're reading the contract that he's relinquishing control, he walks deep, deep, deep in the background and becomes very, very, very small. Um, imagine someone walking in the distance, and they get really small. But then they get to a clause in the, in the contract that says, oh, but there's a stipulation. You'll be able to maintain a certain amount of control over this and this and this. And sure enough, Wells has himself walk back towards us in the foreground and gets really, really big again until suddenly he's he's towering over us again. And there's little, literally every shot in the movie has a symbolic idea like that. So I would urge people if they, you know, thought it was a little dull and boring the first time, like I did in high school and I was struggling to stay away, um, I can't think of a movie that you watch it, you know, 10, 20, 30 times later and you're still seeing new things every shot look for something visually symbolic a little wizard trick <laughs> by this young boy yeah. prodigy who was only in his mid-20s when he made it um he invented a lot of the language that that influenced everything else
0: wow yeah
1: Okay. Very good. So
0: five years later, after the second world war, you had, it's a wonderful life by Frank. Pruss. So that one is, is more than a holiday classic. Why is that?
1: Yeah. So similar to how we had wizard of Oz on our, you know, popcorn movies on the fives, uh, wizard of Oz was at 10. I wanted to put It's a wonderful life, um, as, as the mainstream favorite here at the five at five, um, you know, it's, it airs every Thanksgiving. I I watch it every every Thanksgiving when I'm home with the folks. Um, it, it's just one of those feel good, you know, tear jerker, five hanky, uh, inspirational movies. I think the AFI called it the most inspirational movie of all time. But um, <laughs> you know, but I almost think that I almost think that its reputation as sort of like a, a holiday classic, and also Capra's reputation as sort of that. Capricorn um, Americana kind of a thing. I almost feel like that doesn't do this movie justice. Um, you know, yeah, the, yeah. There's the Christmas opening and closing bookend. You know, with an angel sa- saving uh, George Bailey and everything. But if you really think about it, it is a tale of George. It's kind of a dark tale, right? It's it's George Bailey yeah. contemplating suicide. Like that's we drop in on the story, and it's like, wow, this guy um, was never ever able to get out of Bedford Falls, and there's even like this. You know this almost like a film noir, really moody, shadowy sequence. At, you know, at, at the end, towards the end there, but um, it's sort of like a Charles Dickens uh, Dickensian uh, a Christmas Carol um, in a way yeah. that you know it, it's it's not Scrooge. Uh, you know, I guess I guess Lionel Barrymore's Mister Potter would be the Scrooge. <laughs> uh, George is a good guy, but you know he's sort of seen. Um, you know, w- whereas Scrooge is able to see. You know. Um, the the past and ghosts of past, present and future, George is able to see what is, what the world would be like if he had never existed. And to me, it's just, it's one of those powerful message with so many blinding moments of, of truth where, where all the friends he's made throughout, throughout his life. Um, you know, all those community bonds and, you know, throughout it, it sort of charts American history from them doing the, the Charleston in the, in the roaring twenties to the great depression. And, and then obviously world war two and, and, and the post-war period of, you know, with suburbia and, you know, he works for the building and loan, his dad's company, but um, there's just so much, so many themes that, you know, I think you can, anyone can relate to of them wanting to get out from the family business, wanting to go out and, and, you know, and yeah. the world and conquer it like George Bailey um, but <laughs> to be sh- but to be shown that that really that you know that all the people and the, the friends and family and just you know doing right by people can come back and and in the end you can be you know a toast to my brother George the richest man in town oh I I just got goosebumps thinking about it. every time a bell rings yeah. right but uh, <laughs> but it's it just makes me smile it's it's a great it's a great you know character study it's a great story of of, of and Jimmy Stewart just in a great performance but. To me, you know it's it, it is a holiday classic, but if anyone wants to if anyone wants to to come and say that that you know it's too much of a mainstream favorite and not enough of an art masterpiece, you tell them to come see me because <laughs> I think there's a lot more going on there that Capra's doing. case in point when George is pulled out of the water by Clarence the angel, they're sitting by the fire. There's a, 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 there's like a, imagine a little diagonal rope across the screen, right? There's a little, a little uh, clothesline that they're, they're using to dry off their clothes and, and, and all that. There's a rope line, and George, who's the mortal, is sitting under, underneath it on the screen. And above this diagonal clothesline in the top right of the frame is Clarence who's above it. He's the angel, right? So the the clothes line yeah. is almost the line between the mortal and the and the divine world. So so to me, you know, if anyone wants to say Capra's not genius director, you tell him to see me.
0: <laughs> That's right. Amen to that. Amen. So,
1: let's <laughs> go so to
0: sort of this film noir thing you got here in 1974 by uh director Roman Polanski uh Starring uh, uh, Jack, Chris, Nich- and uh, yeah, Jack Nicholson. Uh, Chinatown. So, talk a little bit more about Chinatown. What makes that a classic movie?
1: Well, I just, I love film noirs and obviously the, the real noir period is probably from like 1941 with Maltese Falcon to about 1958 with Orson Welles' Touch of Evil. But So this one would, would definitely come after that in 1974 and what would you call it? The, the neo-noir period, right? But yeah. to me, um, obviously the opposite of It's a Wonderful Life, right? This is not an upper, this is a downer, by the end.
0: It's very dark.
1: like Like film noir, it's it's all about the idea of like fatalism, right? Like the filmmaker knows that something bad is going to happen to these characters. And all, all, all it is is a matter of time in, until we reach the, the shocking, depressing, cynical uh, <laughs> conclusion, but it's very much, I mean, this is 74. Right? It's very much of its time with Watergate and, you know, people didn't trust, you know, their institutions. And, and here it is a script uh by Robert Town, I think I honestly think it's as close to a, perp, a perfect script that, it, that exists. Um, unraveling its mystery as Jack Nicholson's uh, Private Eye um, investigates this and peels that onion and, and exposes this water and power scandal where John Houston is, you know, buying up land and 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 um, diverting the city's water supply um, particularly at night around different channels throughout LA as LA coming up and, you know, growing and being born in the 1940s. Um, so there's that right. whole almost Godfather-esque, you know, corruption at every every level theme. Um, but to me, like, the dialogue, it's so great. Like, when when Robert Town has Jack Nicholson go up to Faye Dunaway and says, like, you know, I, I think you're hiding something. He's like, I I lost my nose. or You know, someone cut my nose, and I like <laughs> my nose. I like breathing through it. <laughs> there's, like, little great film noir dialogue, too, but not to mention um, a great, shocking twist when Faye Faye Dunaway reveals the truth. I'm not going to spoil it for for people who haven't seen it. Well, actually, screw it. We can because it was. There's no spoiler alerts on a movie from the 70s, right? When she says,
0: <laughs> when she says,
1: <laughs> Nicholson's trying to investigate this mysterious young girl that he's been photographing with Faye Dunaway, and 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 she says she's my. F-. He he goes. I want that rose like a few good men, and she goes. She's my sister and my daughter. And at that point, it's like, whoa. What, and Jack Nicholson is, what <laughs> have I gotten myself into? This is, it's sick. It really is. And and at that point, John Houston, the villain, becomes just horrific, especially in the end, you know, when, when he sort of gets away with it. And so I think that the end, the, the first time you watch it, you're almost put off by the cynicism. In the end, it's, it's there's Faye Dunaway's, dies, she gets shot and you know, and uh and John Houston leaves with leaves with the the girl and, and Jack Nicholson's almost catatonic and they have to rush the police rush him away saying, Forget it, Jake, it's Chinatown but it's just it's a dark, dark ending that, you know, I think it wasn't originally in the script, it ended differently. Roman Polanski, who had his own problems long after this, trust me, uh, you know uh, I, I only wanted yeah. this movie because it was before that whole, could get into a conversation with <laughs> this year's uh, Nate Parker and, and Woody Allen all that other stuff, but that's a different conversation for a different day, but um, it was Polanski yeah. who insi- insisted this dark ending because it was, not only were his parents killed in the Holocaust back in, in, he was Polish, but his parents were killed in the Holocaust and then Right before this movie, um, right after he had made Rosemary's Baby about a doomed pregnancy, his own wife, Sharon Tate, was stabbed to death in her pregnant belly in the Manson murders in 1969. Chinatown was his first movie after that. So it was Polanski that insisted that it had this dark, you know, pessimistic ending. But to me, don't be put off by that. Um, You know, enjoy the mystery the first time through because it's definitely a, a gumshoe zinger, man. It's great, but feeling that onion, but go back and watch it. Once you know the ending, I insist, go back and watch it again and you will find so many cool clues. There's all these references to to Faye Dunaway's There's a flaw in her eye, her iris, and that's the eye she's ultimately shot through. She, When she's shot and died, her head falls on the steering wheel of the car and it honks really loud in the end, but There's moments earlier in the movie where she accidentally lowers her head and hits her head on the steering wheel and it makes it honk, or there's other people honking in the background of their cars while they're talking about stuff. There's so many genius um, symbolic things going on the more you watch it that, to me, it's, it's only steadily rose my list of favorites as probably one of the greatest scripts ever and one of the greatest movies ever.
0: Yeah, yeah, it's a real good one. Another great one, I think I would put it probably in my... Yeah, well, you have it in your top three, so let's talk about it. Uh, from the Second World War, nineteen forty-two, I mean, it influenced a lot of movies, kind of like uh, like Indiana Jones, uh, many other movies that came after. Casablanca with uh, Bogart—that's a—that's a great one. So, talk about some of the things that makes that a great one.
1: Yeah, definitely. I mean, now you mentioned that it's the, in the top three. I mean. Obviously, any of these top three we're about to talk about are pretty much are pretty interchangeable, right? I, I would be fine with putting any of them as as my number one movie ever. But right now, uh, Casablanca. I mean, man, what can you say about this movie that hasn't already been said? I mean, um, it's made in 1941 or 42 um it's so literally we don't america does not know as audiences are going to see this they don't know if we're going to win the world the war they don't like pearl harbor yeah. had just been bombed and there's even the line where where humphrey bogart um is is at the bar drinking and he says it's december 1941 in casablanca i wonder what they're, they're doing in america they're probably sleeping all over the world and and really you audiences then and now know that Oh no! Actually, Pearl Harbor was just bombed, and you're about to be dragged into the war. But um, so there's little cool things like that. But but um, but the real cool thing is is sort of how it's sort of like an allegory. I mean, uh, Rick Blaine, uh, Bogart's character is is basically he is a proxy. Uh, he represents America and it's reluctance uh, to enter World War II. I mean, uh, Rick says at the beginning of the movie, I don't stick my neck out for anybody. And the U.S. is kind of the same way. I mean, Hitler had had already invaded um, in, I think it was, 39 maybe. And, you know, so America took a couple years to get in. Europe is falling apart and, and, and embroiled in war. And then America is Rick Blaine. It takes him to get pushed out of his comfort zone. And, you know, he... He's not some over-the-top hero. Like, like you know, we love Indiana Jones and James Bond and all those characters. We, I love them. Um, but Rick is not like that. Rick is kind of an every-ordinary guy who, you know, is, is only pushed into doing the right thing. And I think that's what we love about these characters is they're, they're not these, you know, boilerplate heroes, but they rise to the occasion like we all wish we would if we were in their position, right? So he yeah. sacrifices... He, he he sacrifices for the cause. And in the end, he has to choose between what's right for the war. <laughs> am I going to save the world? Or am I going to save my romance with my StarCross lover, uh, Ilsa, with, by uh, an awesome, never better Ingrid Bergman? I mean, this and probably Hitchcock's Notorious are two best roles. Ilsa um, and Laszlo and Rick are this great love triangle, right? And in the end, he decides to, to let her go because, you know, the cause is more important then their romance. Um, that final scene on the airport, on the tarmac, is just legendary, maybe the most famous scene of all time. And honestly, what were these screenwriters eating for breakfast that morning? I mean, they, <laughs> it's the, I, think the w, the, I think the writers you know, voted it the greatest script ever written, and for good reason. Oh, not only the themes we, we just talked about, but the, the famous lines in this. I mean, you get pl- – Play it, Sam. You you get um, round up the usual suspects of all the gin joints in all the towns in all the world. um, We'll always have Paris. Here's looking at you, kid. I mean, that's I just named like five amazingly famous lines. I mean, most groups would be happy to have one of those lines, let alone like five, six, or seven. And um, God, let's not forget Claude Rains (laughs) as as the you know the the guy who turns and sees the light. So man, it's. It is just an amazing movie. Michael Curtiz, you know, sort of a, a chameleon of, of the studio system, but he really pulled off <laughs> a, a legendary movie here. I could, I want to watch it right now just talking about <laughs> it.
0: Yeah, it's amazing. It's an amazing film.
1: So we're going to go forward uh, 16
0: years. So you say here critics and crowds didn't grasp this film upon release. I've only seen it. Once it was kind of a, a strange movie it's by the great uh, Alfred Hitchcock uh, starring uh, uh, Jimmy Stewart. This movie is called vertigo so why why is this one considered a classic
1: so vertigo is very i i've always sort of been there was something about it from the first time I saw it that that sort of obsessed me, and I know the movie is about a swirling obsession. There's all these spiraling imageries in the opening credits. There's this spiral, even Kim Novak's uh, hair that she wears as Madeline, you know, the, the supposedly possessed by a ghost uh, uh, woman, even her hair is a spiral. There's spiraling circular camera moves. So this whole thing is, is Hitchcock's obsessions, right? But, um, but to me, there's always something I loved about it. And, um, I always considered it Hitch's best. I mean, um, most people, you know, will go with, with Psycho, which is a great movie, or North by Northwest is probably his most purely fun. Rear Window is a freaking masterpiece. I mean, it's literally yeah. Jimmy Stewart looking from window to window. It's it's almost a metaphor for the movie-making process. of a, You know, Jimmy Stewart looking from the windows is, is like a director cutting from shot to shot with the windows he looks at. But, I mean, there's some... I love Hitchcock, but... Um, I, I'd like to think I sort of got in the ground floor of, of hailing vertigo as its best. And literally uh, a couple of years ago, sight and sound magazine polled a global, they have this international global critics poll and it just topped citizen Kane for the first time since like the 1960s as the global critics pick of the best movie of all time. Now, why, why is that? Mm. right? And, and a lot of people are, Dumbfounded, similarly, to citizen came by this. Right? They're kind of dumbfounded by yeah. it. like you, like you said in the intro. Critics and audiences are, didn't get it. It, it. it was a flop. It kind of ends very tragically uh, at the bell tower, and and the hero's sort of doomed and sort of right back where he started. But um I remember some of those early reviews. Well, I don't remember them. I wasn't born, but <laughs> I've gone back and read them. Um, they said it, it's a bizarre movie where um, he's Jimmy Stewart is, is tailing a woman who is believed to be possessed by a ghost. She dies, and then all of a sudden he starts following another woman that uh, <laughs> he believes that looks like her, but it can't be her because she died, right? So um, they re- weren't sure what to make of this almost, like, Fetishistic uh, thing by Hitchcock, and it's it's definitely bizarre subject matter. And Hitchcock could just get away with telling the most creepy, bizarre stuff. But a lot of them complained that there were awkward angles, and they said, why why does the camera keep? There's weird angles where the camera's looking at the ceiling all the time. They're like, well, they didn't know what to make of this movie. And to me, I've I've watched it a billion times, and the reason that they're showing the ceiling is. The whole point of the end is the twist is what happened above the ceiling with the bell tower. It, remember there, there was that movie, that what that thriller, What Lies Beneath? Well, it's What Lies Above the Ceiling. So Hitchcock is hinting at this the entire time. Um, there's long sequences where Jimmy Stewart is following Kim Novak in, in his car, and it's typically a silent movie for about a good 30-minute chunk towards the beginning of the movie. But um, throughout this whole point, not only is it, Pure cinema of Hitchcock showing visual storytelling, but there's, if you go back and watch it again, every time Jimmy Stewart gets out of the car, Hitchcock tilts it up and there's a bell tower or a church behind him, which is just signaling this fate similar to Chinatown like we said this idea of fate is watching and and the the, the director the sort of the, the heavenly God of the movie um, looking down on the bell tower knows how it's gonna end it no he knows Jimmy Stewart is, is going to this fate and it's honestly if you go back and watch it over and over again you're gonna find amazing brilliant stuff that Hitchcock has planted foreshadowing the end and maybe I just it's just because I get off on the foreshadowing I, I, I love that as a film critic you know I, I really dig that that idea yeah. of, of you know, I think Scorsese said you haven't seen Vertigo until you've seen it again. And I, I would I echo that entirely. <laughs> um a, a great Bernard Herman score. Um there's awesome use of the colors red and green. Red denotes the mortal world and the, and green denotes um the ever li- the afterlife. The evergreen. they go to they go to see the sequoia trees and they talk about green being ever living, but um there's the famous scene where Jimmy Stewart has Judy Kim Novak as Judy dress up as Madeline, his former lover he lost. It's a great tale of lost love. If any of us have had a girlfriend or a wife or someone we've lost, if not through death like the movie, it's just a breakup. Um, it's a great. I mean, it, you almost could come to tears if you think about it in those terms of Jimmy Stewart trying to remake his new lover to look like the old one. Oh my God, it's so. And who, who he knows is dead. Oh, it's 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 really deep, bizarre stuff. But um when yeah. she emerges out of when she emerges out of the hotel um bathroom dressed as Madeline, there, the music swells and there she's in this she's bathed in this neon green light which, which we just said and I read in the book that Hitchcock said it's it's the afterlife. It, it's the you know, it it's to denote, you know, that, that sh that this is the dead dead woman. Um it, they embrace in this kiss there the camera circles circles around them and the, the apartment even changes as they're kissing, uh uh, to a memory he had of their first kiss together in a stable, and, and it circles all the way around. The music swells and fade to black, and to me, that moment is just one of, like, pure cinematic bliss. I, I totally get if people think it's weird the first time they watch it, but I invite them to, to watch it one time, see the ending, know the ending, and then go back and watch The Master of Suspense and The Master of Romance and The Master of Lost Love, in this case, plant the seeds of what was recently voted the critics' best movie of all time, and I would like to think I was a little ahead of the curve on that
0: one. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I'm going to definitely have to check that one out again. So we're down to about 15, 16 minutes. So there's this what? one film that's so brilliant and won Best Picture twice. Uh, <laughs> yeah, part and, and one and part It's two. kind of a combined work. Part one is a baptism. Part two is Betrayal. Francis Ford Coppola's The Godfather, 1972 to 1974. So talk about The Godfather.
1: Um, I mean, this one, I I toyed with what to make number one. Is it my personal favorite, like, you know, the Hitchcock, Vertigo, or Casablanca, which, you know, you said you beloved, we all love. But to me, I mean, I had to go with The Godfather. It's hard to argue. I mean, it's it's sort of beloved by... Academics and critics um, on one side, you know, the, it'll it'll be towards the top of the AFI and, and all those lists. But it's also beloved by, you know, audiences. I mean, it's it's the it's the top fan-voted, fan-rated thing on sites like IMDb and things like that. I mean, it this thing sort of was to me like the perfect marriage of sort of that artistic um, operatic tragedy. Of these sons who become their fathers, and you know, we we watch Pacino, who is is the one the one son, right, that Brando didn't want to get mixed up in the family business. You know, you have James Caan and and Robert Duvall and everyone, who, who are in the family business. They're gangsters. They're they're killers and all that. But Pacino was the war hero who he hopes would grow up to be Governor Corleone or Senator Corleone. But um, in the end, we watch through through circumstance, through fate, through his own bad choices. Um, we watch Michael uh, Al Pacino's character sort of evolve or, or devolve into everything that his dad didn't want him to become. Um, and to me, it's it's it it sort of says that you know it, it sort of it says, it shows corruption on every level of American society. We see the, cops, the we see cops that are corrupt. We see the judicial system in, in part two when they have the, the, the government hearings. Uh, we see that that can be manipulated. Um, there's senators that, that that are, you know, carried around like nickels and dimes in, in the gangster's pockets. Um, the, the movie the entertainment industry, you know, a, a horse head in a bed will convince a director to cast Johnny Fontaine in his movie. Um everything I mean all the way all the way up as in this this movie suggests all the way up even to even religion can be corruptible right i mean we 've seen god even the reigning best spotlight we've we 've seen you know corruption too, so um and there 's a lot of great sides to the religion too don 't get me wrong, Pope Francis and the rest you know so we don 't want you know the that gets just the danger of the Godfather to see to see uh you know the Catholicism that that murder you know, juxtaposed with baptism there at the end of part one but um, it, it shows that literally every level of society can be corrupted if at the right time, if in the right place, by, by the wrong people. And um, and and man, we haven't even got to part two where they have, they have the <laughs> guts. They have the guts to juxtapose, um, you know. Michael's story, you know, we pick up where part 1 left off with Michael and Diane Keaton, you know, out in Lake Tahoe and and Fredo's betrayal and all the great stuff in Cuba. I know it was you, Fredo, you broke my heart. All that great stuff. Um but they 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 intercut that with where De Niro was or where Brando uh was at his at that point in his life, played by De Niro at a young age, you know, immigrating from Italy, from Sicily, we there's a that great sequence when they arrive at past the Statue of Liberty in Ellis Island when he's just a boy and they say, "What city are you from?" and and it's Corleone, so it becomes Vino Corleone. You know, we watch him rise yeah. <laughs> and, and just imagine, um, imagine being able to watch what your father was doing while you were his age or while he was your age, or, or if you're, if there's a woman listening to this, imagine being able to, you know, cross cut you and your mother and and compare that and interesting cuts you can, and fades and dissolves you can do between the two. And man, it's just the the guts of doing that is amazing. And, and, and from a script level and visually I've noticed, I've found things that I don't even know if they've been written about in books. Uh, (laughs) We've, We've seen uh, the fame. One of the famous lines. Or- there's a million famous lines. One of the famous lines is Luca Brasi sleeps with the fishies, right? It's The gangster line. Right. But before that, when he's killed, Coppola shoots his Luca Brasi's death through a window that has a fish pattern on it. Like he's setting this up. It's that fate idea that I keep talk- that I love. Or later. Um, before, after Fredo betrays Michael, they're at their Lake Tahoe estate, and Michael basically disowns him, um, and there's this giant glass glass wall um, looking out at the water wh- where Fredo's eventually going to be, his body's going to be dumped. But if you yeah. go back and watch that scene, there are life preservers in the background, uh, little r- circular raft <laughs> behind, behind where Al Pacino's standing, but there are none. Noticeably, none behind where Fredo is, is lying down. Behind him, there there are little things like that um, throughout both of these movies. That to me, it's it's the perfect marriage of art and an entertainment roller coaster that we can quote. You know, <laughs> offer you can't refuse. Load the gun, take the cannolis. It's business, not personal. It's you know, it, it captured the mainstream imagination in a way that an art masterpiece two-time best picture winner beloved, you know, acclaimed movie, um, rarely does. They rarely captures both. And to me, it earns the top spot. Nice.
0: Nice. Okay, Jason, this is a lot of fun. We're down to about, I'm going to (laughs) jump to the, the foreign list, but I think we only have time for like about three of them. And if we have any time left at all, uh, just kind of shout out a couple of, uh, Oscar why don't I just, and the best time people can find you yeah. on WTOP. So the three that I have Yeah. Why don't I just I have blow? Why don't is, I blow uh, through
1: these all five really huh? quick? Like what? I'll blow through these. I'll blow through the four, the top four and you just do, super you fast. You want to do five? Ready? Yeah. I'll, okay, I'll just do like okay, one line on it. Yeah. Okay. All right. So number okay. five, I have 2001: A Space Odyssey by Stanley Kubrick. Um, you know, I, a lot of people forget that after. That that starting with Doctor Strangelove, he moved to to Britain to and started making his movies over there. Similar to how Hitchcock is is made a bunch of American movies, Kubrick made a bunch of British movies. Um, 2001, man, it's it it. There's great shots like the the ape. We start with the apes throwing a bone in the air, you know, and, and it beco- and it comes down and it cuts and becomes a spaceship, and and from there, basically, is Kubrick trying to chart our evolution, um, literally from the formation of of the Earth, and you know. <laughs> from the caves and early apes and and such to the outer reaches of space all in on the span of about two hours. It's probably the most mind-blowing, enlightening, um, ambitious <laughs> movie that's out there. I still don't entirely get the ending, but I don't think we're meant to, but Kubrick thought in grand terms and of course you gotta love How 9000. Um, number four, I have Breathless, Jean-Luc Godard with a script by Francois Truffaut. It's like this pulp crime story, but it's the reason it makes best lists and why it made mine is it's sort of the epitome of what they called the French New Wave in 1959, 1960, around there. And when all these directors were starting to do jump cuts and messing with the soundtrack and, and all this stuff that were sort of avant-garde that, that that were never done in the studio system, but all of a sudden you, you would you know jump cut through a scene and, and do all these things and and. and self-referential pop culture things and and uh, sort of like the, the Tarantino style, but that, this sort of invented that, um, and then a bunch of the Hollywood directors sort of adopted it for our Hollywood Renaissance in the 70s, but the French did it first, and Godard's uh, Breathless definitely wanted to check out. Uh, number three, I have Tokyo Story by Ozu the Japanese movie um a lot of people when you think Japanese cinema you think of like the Seven Samurai or Rashomon those yeah. Kurosawa movies those Kurosawa was like the blockbuster guy for sure and I think I have him in, in my top 10 too but um Tokyo Story I think Ozu was almost uh not only I think he was a, a better filmmaker I, I really love I, and I wanted people to check out this movie Tokyo Story it's it's very patient the camera doesn't move much so you might want to you might want to pack your patience. It's not a lot of cutting and, and jumping around like, you know, movies we're used to seeing, but it's all sort of these static, meaning not moving shots from the floor level, because in Japan they sit on the floor a lot. Um, it just sort of sits in and watches this family. But to me, um, maybe it's because I, I lost my grandparents recently, and I love them so much. When I first saw this, um, it just ripped my heart out, because the whole thing is about these parents who, who are, live in rural Japan and they visit their kids in Tokyo, but – the whole trip that they're there, the kids are too busy for them. And I'm, and then uh, by the end, you know, oh, tragically so that, you know, they, they, they missed out on, on their last chance to hang out with, with their parents. And, um, the only person that's, that's nice to them and, and cancels her work and picks them on a tour through town is the daughter-in-law. So, uh, it's just the universal themes in that, man. I just think it's almost poetic the way it's done. Number two, David Lean, uh, gr- the greatest British director ever. Well, other than Hitchcock, but, um, Lawrence of Arabia, <laughs> Lawrence of Arabia, probably the greatest, most sweeping epic of all time. Yeah, it's four hours, but give it the time. I see it on a big screen in that widescreen. Um, it's an epic World War One, you know, masterpiece. Um, but there's Peter O'Toole is is just a great role, and David Lean has some great stuff where you know he'll he'll do these, these amazing cuts from like Peter O'Toole will have a, a burning match and you'll blow out the match and all of a sudden you'll cut to a sunrise coming up over the desert to that great Maurice Jarre score um, or Omar Sharif will ride in from, from far from the background, like almost like out of a mirage and approach them. There's just great filmmaking there, but more so watch to see how the Middle East got carved up by the West, how colonial, Britain, America, all the West—who, you know—to the, the victor goes the spoils, right? You know, they after World War, right. War One, the Middle East is carved up and into the present-day chaos we're still dealing with. And I honestly think that's not going to end anytime soon, sadly. So, Lawrence right. and Arabia will be a relevant document forever, honestly. Um, and number one, you know, uh, I, I went with. I had to go with the Fellini movie, uh, Italy's uh, La Dolce Vita, which means The Sweet Life from 1960. Um, it's a challenging movie for sure. It's about three hours. It, it's pretty arty, if I, I hate using that word. But just to warn viewers, um, you know Lawrence of Arabia is much easier to digest, or even Tokyo Story. But um, to me, I. I'm, when I close my eyes and think of global, world, international cinema, I think of that uh, of a Fellini movie, and uh, where there's a great scene where Anita Eckberg, the beautiful, she's almost like a Marilyn Monroe, uh, is is in a yeah. is bathing in a fountain. It's a famous image, and uh, she Marcello, Marcello, and Fellini just throughout the movie, this there's, just um, there's all these great thematic contrasts between. Um, sacred religious sort of stuff like it opens with a, a helicopter flying uh, carrying a crucifix over over rome towards the vatican uh, so it juxtaposes that with sort of the more profane uh things about life uh, the, the, the la doce vida sort of the party scene it, it actually the, the term paparazzi comes from this movie there's a photographer named paparazzo so <laughs> there's a uh, there's these great contrasts that if you're sort of into this global um, art house cinema that, that you'll love, um, a lot of people hold up Eight and a Half as Fellini's best, and it, that's a great groundbreaking movie, but to me, La Dolce Vita is the best. But a word of warning, it's, it's definitely a challenge for, <laughs> if you're not into subtitles, so give it a shot, though.
0: Wow, Jason. Okay, so I guess we're about ready to wrap up here. So just talk about uh, how fans can keep up with you and uh, when they can hear you on the radio.
1: Definitely, and you know, thanks so much for having me on this is i mean god we we that hour went fast I felt like five minutes. <laughs> it was a lot of fun um, we yeah. we uh you can you can uh hear my pieces every day on 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 w t o p which is one o three point five um here in d c and one o three point nine uh, on the outskirts like up around frederick and you know farther away um obviously check out uh just go to w t l p dot com and click the entertainment page uh, I run that. I'm our entertainment editor, so I run that and uh, do a different cover story on there. Um, entertainment editor is almost uh, editor editor's a misnomer. It's more of an entertainment reporter because I feel like I'm out covering events <laughs> more than I'm sitting there editing. <laughs> uh, I have I have a, a different cover story on air and online every day, so uh, check that out. Or as you said, uh, you can I'll post it on on uh, on social media. So follow me on Twitter at J WTOP. Um, so yeah, and lots of ways to to see the stuff. I love the gig, and even more, I love you having me on. I really appreciate.
0: it. Oh yeah, man. Yeah, definitely. I'll have you on again. It was it was fun, and uh, we'll talk about uh, your Oscar picks the next time.
1: Yeah, perfect. Yeah, well, that that can be its own show.
0: That's right. That's right. Okay, Jason. Man, you have a have a great great night and uh, an even more successful week.
1: <laughs> Thanks, William, and uh, I encourage everyone. You know, we'll never—none of us will ever agree on best list, but I encourage everyone to to at least, you know, get up on their movie history and make their own list. It's it's a lot of fun.
0: All right. Have a great night. Thank you, sir. Okay. Bye bye. All right, dear listeners, remember to do something for your career every day and break a leg. Night. Looking for a show to see this weekend? Look no further than DC Metro Theater Arts. They've got reviews, Q&As with actors, and much, much more. Visit DCMetroTheaterArts.com. That's DCMetroTheaterArts.com.
1: Under the dark you pacify me Hold my breath Take me down, I won't fight Beat of my heart, you drum inside me Somewhere my death Makes a sound no one can find us